back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today we are going to look at the rebuttal, which says that Paul invoked his Roman citizenship. Therefore, we should embrace our citizenship with whatever country it is in which we reside. So first, I want to be clear that by viewing governments as usurpers of God, I am not saying that they do only bad things. I think that's a common misconception that people have about Reformed doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. We are depraved in all parts of our being and tainted by sin, but that doesn't mean that we are always as sinful as we could be. The same thing is true of government. The government builds schools and roads which do some great things for human flourishing, but that doesn't mean we support the government as an institution. It doesn't make the government good. Planned Parenthood performs many good services and procedures for women in need, yet conservative Christians don't support them. And of course, there are Christian counselors who perform conversion therapy who everyone could acknowledge perform good work elsewhere, but liberals wouldn't support them. No matter what side of the aisle you land on, we all recognize that doing some good doesn't legitimate an institution or a service. So how would I respond to Paul's invocation of Roman citizenship? First, I'll say that just because Paul did something doesn't mean that he should have. Paul and Barnabas fight about Mark and split ways. Abraham impregnated his slave without rebuke. David was polygamous without rebuke. The Bible describes a lot of events which which aren't prescribed for us. That being said, I don't think I have a problem with Paul invoking Roman citizenship. We give the analogy quite often that Christians are to be ambassadors to the world. We know that ambassadors to other countries get plenty of benefits. Just because one does not consider themselves a primary citizen of a country doesn't mean that they don't get to have access to any of their laws and structures. If you are assaulted while in another country, you would have recourse in their court system despite not being a citizen. So honestly, I just don't find this rebuttal very meaningful at all. Paul had access to Roman citizenship, and when he was put into the Roman courts, which I think is important to emphasize, he didn't invoke the courts as he says not to do in 1 Corinthians 6. He was thrown into the court system. And when he was, he simply held their system to its own standards to try to get a fair trial. We only see Paul invoking his citizenship when Rome oversteps its bounds or thrusts him into a particular situation. We don't see Paul going around and trying to make his Roman citizenship a primary thing. I know that maybe you were expecting more out of my answer here, but that's just kind of how I see it at the moment. I will make sure to link some other resources, however, in the show notes, which would get down into the weeds a whole lot more, uh, if that's something that you want to look at from different angles. That being said, I'm not really done here because today is Juneteenth, and I wanted to tie this episode into this special day. I thought that while I don't have much more to say about Paul's situation in general, I think I can maybe provide some other ideas about citizenship. One of the works which came immediately to mind for today, dealing with citizenship and dealing with um, Juneteenth, was Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Now, Douglass, of course, was a very prominent figure in the abolition movement, and we could draw a lot from his works. One of the things that stuck out to me from his autobiography was that the more religious of a Christian a master was, 
the worse Douglas thought they usually tended to be. And Douglas was a Christian, so he wasn't at all talking against Jesus. He was just recognizing that a certain type of person was able to take religion and wield it with great ferocity. I think you see this beautifully in the movie The Book of Eli. It's such a good depiction of how various groups attempt to use power and knowledge. Um, but anyway, What to the Slave of the Four- is the Fourth of July is a great piece because it's going to get at this idea of citizenship that we talked about today. So let me go ahead and read Douglas's work, and then I want to draw some conclusions from it at the end. What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Fellow citizens, I'm not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too. Great enough to give frame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not, certainly, the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes, and for the good they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. Fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence, extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. For who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy could not warm him? Who so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that would not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits? Who so stolid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the chains of servitude had been torn from his limbs? I am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might eloquently speak and the lame man leap as in heart. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems we're in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there's a parallel to your conduct. And let me warn you that it is a dangerous, it is dangerous to copy the example of a nation whose crimes, towering up to heaven, were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, bearing that nation in irrevocable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of a peeled and woe-smitten people. 
By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they who wasted us required of, of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Fellow citizens, above your national, tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wails of millions, whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme, would be treason most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day in its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity which is outraged, in the name of liberty which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce, with all the emphasis I can command, everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command, and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice, or who is not at heart a slaveholder, shall not confess to be right and just. But I fancy I hear some of my audience say, it is just in this circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists failed to make a favorable impression on the public mind. Would you argue more and denounce less? Would you persuade more and rebuke less? Your cause would be much more likely to succeed. But I submit, where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued. What point in the anti-slavery creed would you have me argue? On what branch of the subject do people of this country need light? Must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? That point is conceded already. Nobody doubts it. The slaveholders themselves acknowledge it in the enactment of laws for their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of any slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia which, if committed by a black man, no matter how ignorant he be, subject him to the punishment of death, while only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? The manhood of the slave is conceded. It is admitted in the fact that southern statute books are covered with enactments forbidding, under severe fines and penalties, the teaching of the slave to read to, or to write. When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, 
then I may consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs in your streets, when the fowls of the air, when the cattle on your hills, when the fish of the sea and the reptiles that crawl shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, then will I argue with you that the slave is a man. For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that while we are plowing, planting, and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools, erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metals of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, poets, authors, editors, orators, and teachers, that while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all, confessing and worshiping the Christian's God, and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave, we are called upon to prove that we are men. Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? Is that a question for Republicans? Is it to be settled by the rules of logic and argumentation, as a matter beset with great difficulty involving a doubtful application of the principle of justice, hard to be understood? How should I look today in the presence of Americans, dividing and subdividing a discourse to show that men have a natural right to freedom? Speaking of it relatively and positively, negatively and affirmatively, to do so would be to make myself ridiculous and to offer an insult to your understanding. There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him. What am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with the lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters. Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. What, then, remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine? That God did not establish it? That our doctors of divinity are mistaken? There's blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? They that can, may. I cannot. The time for such argument is past. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would, today, pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. 
The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed, and its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are, to him, mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, Roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America. Search out every abuse. And when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation. And you will say with me that, for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. Allow me to say, in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began, with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age, Nations do not now stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago. No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world and trot round in the same old paths of its fathers without interference. The time was when such could be done. Long-established customs of hurtful character could formally fence themselves in and do their evil work with social impunity. Knowledge was then confined and enjoyed by the privileged few and the multitude walked on in mental darkness. But a change has now come over the affairs of mankind. Walled cities and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe. It makes its pathway over and under the sea as well as on the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents. Oceans no longer divide but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far-off and almost fabulous Pacific rolls in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages, is being solved. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. The iron shoe, the crippled foot of China, must be seen in contrast with nature. Africa must rise and put on her yet unwoven garment. Ethiopia shall stretch out her hand unto Oud. In the fervent aspirations of William Lloyd Garrison, I say, 
Let every heart join in saying, God speed the year of jubilee, the wide world o'er, when from their galling chains set free, the oppressed shall vilely bend the knee, and wear the yoke of tyranny like brutes no more. That year will come and freedom's reign to man his plundered rights again restore. God speed the day when human blood shall cease to flow, in every clime be understood the claims of human brotherhood, and each return for evil good, not blow for blow. That day will come, all feuds to end, and change into a faithful friend each foe. God speed the hour, the glorious hour, when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power, nor in a tyrant's presence cower, but to all manhood's stature tower by equal birth. That hour will come to each, to all, and from his prison house to thrall go forth. Until that year, day, hour arrive, with head and heart and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the jive, the spoiler of his prey deprive. So witness heaven, and never from my chosen post, whate'er the peril or the cost, be driven. I love that piece. Douglas uh, Douglas lays it all out, and um, he just doesn't hold anything back. And, and it's fantastic. Um, sobering, but but amazing. And, and especially, I think, in retrospect, is you know that it's not too much longer until, um, you know, slavery, at least uh, it, by law, is overturned. Um, it, it, it's exciting to kind of know that that happens. Um, but then also depressing to know that, that all that happens with Jim Crow and, um, you know, sharecropping and stuff. Anyway, um, so let's talk about this, this piece in relation to today's episode. So first, I love Douglas's use of your throughout the beginning, right? He says, um, he's, he's basically saying, hey, look, I don't have a part in this. You guys are talking about freedom and all this stuff. This is your 4th of July. This isn't the slaves' 4th of July. It's not our 4th of July. We're not, we're not equal. We're not really, truly citizens. Um, you say we are, but we aren't. Um, and Douglas was recognizing the fact that, that um, I mean, I don't think he was truly a citizen in terms of how, how he was ultimately viewed and treated, but he was definitely more so than the slaves. Um, but they, they were being kept out of full partace, participation in citizenship. The second thing that I want to note is one particularly powerful paragraph, and that was the one where Douglas was talking about, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, what, where the title comes in. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day, to him, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice, cruelty, right? So he goes into all that. Um, and it's towards the end. It's a beautiful paragraph. But he says a couple things that I think are important. He says, first of all, true citizenship trumps facade citizenship, right? Um, and then second, he recognizes that American ideals are really hypocritical facades. So he's, he's just um, really underlining the hypocrisy of, uh, of the American citizenship of his day. And I think these two things go together uh, and are very powerful. Because independence wasn't his, and the independence narrative that they celebrated on the 4th of July was, was really a sham. Like, it, 
it wasn't true. And that's that's what he was basically pointing out, right? And isn't that what I'm really kind of trying to say today? That citizenship in the little K kingdoms, whether you're in Great Britain, Iran, the United States, China, um, those citizenships, they're shams. The nations offer us the rights that they determine and the rights that they say they determine from God. They even invoke his authority, just just like the book of Eli talked about. But our God-given rights are only rights for some and at certain times, betraying the fact that we don't really believe their natural rights are God-given. For Douglas, it was, um, you know, he's got inalienable rights, um, uh, or or people in the United States did, but only certain people, right? Only, um, Only white people, basically. We have the same thing today. Immigrants. We don't want to give them inalienable rights. What about prisoners? Uh, if we deem that they're the types of prisoners we want to be able to not have inalienable rights, put them up in Guantanamo Bay, right? Treat them not as prisoners of war. Treat them as inhuman. Uh, we do the same thing today. Citizenship by countries is a sham. It's not, it's not the citizenship that God divvies out. It's not the, the human citizenship. God's citizenship, this big K kingdom citizenship, right? That's borderless. You can, you can go anywhere. It's intrinsic. No matter where you go, it follows you. It doesn't stop at some arbitrary border. Um, it, it's borderless, and it's for, for everybody. It, it truly is for all, and it truly is irrevocable. It is broader than our national rights, as we have the rights of sons and daughters to an all-powerful sovereign of the universe. And those are some rights, right? Whereas Douglas had rights withheld from him, and therefore wasn't really a citizen, uh, he, he wasn't a citizen due to exclusion, our recognition that we aren't truly citizens of any nation is exclusion by choice. We're saying... Your citizenship is a sham. I've got the real thing, the real deal, the real citizen. I'm a a citizen of the real sovereign. I'm not your citizen. So finally, I want you to notice that Douglas's hope was not that America was so great that she would do the right thing, but rather that nations would no longer be independent because truth was global. Now think about how powerful that is. This great nation, the United States, wasn't so great that she would correct herself. She would only become good as truth could flow more globally, and as other nations saw what was going on, evil would be more likely to be kept in check. And that's what, that's what Douglas says. He, he, he said, uh, it's right there towards the end if you want to go back and look at it, but he says, you know, because there are really no borders anymore, it's a date. It's a, a vacation now from Boston to London. Um, the the seas are no longer barriers, but they're they're highways, they're they're connectors, because we can get across them so quickly. Douglas was saying, like you can't hide things anymore. Everybody sees what you're doing, and in that light shining in the darkness, it it's going to cause change. I believe that it's going to cause slavery slavery to overturn. So Douglas. It's not something inherent, intrinsic to the United States that makes the United States get rid of slavery. It's really the outside pressure 
is what Douglas is, is arguing for. And what we talk about with, uh, you know, in regard to uh, the civil rights movement and voting rights and that kind of stuff, we saw in our CRT episode, like, way, way back, um, you know, they argue that nations really only legislate when, um, for, for a couple of reasons, but one of those reasons is when you have outside pressure. And so um, when we're kind of fighting with atheist, ungodly Soviet Russia, it, w- it looked really bad to have these human rights violations with uh, against African-Americans, against black people. And so we're like, yeah, we kind of need to fix that if we're going to fight the Soviet Union. And so part of legislation, uh, anti-racist legislation, was a result of, of having to fix that image of human rights. It was in our best interest to get rid of that, which is also why we put in God we trust and, and under God in the pledge, right? Why did we do that stuff? What happened right there in the beginning of the 50s, right right before um, Brown versus the Board of Education? And Anyway, rabbit trail. You can go back and listen to that, that episode, but I mean, that's, that's what Douglas is essentially acknowledging. Um, the outside pressures are going to, to um, impact evils being exposed and changed. So, you know, just, just think about that. A borderless world is the type of world Douglas envisions getting rid of slavery. Um, and while the, the secular world, the, the world at large, has become more borderless, isn't that what we're arguing for as a big K kingdom people, as Christians, that Christ's kingdom is borderless? I mean, that's what we want. The last thing I want you to see here is something that... Um, I don't think Douglas was trying to say this, and he didn't realize what he was he was saying. Um, so I'm I'm going to draw a conclusion though from what he was saying. Um, but he he ends up confirming something that we've talked about here a lot. So a lot of people get hung up on Romans 13. Well, look, it says that the government's good, or um, you know, I guess First Peter submit to governments and see you like God loves government and it's set up to to um, to do good, and they forget that. I mean, all over the Old Testament, it calls like Nebuchadnezzar a servant of God. <laughs> and if you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, right, he builds this big idol to himself. He conquers all these nations and slaughters people and tortures. And he's he's a terrible guy. Um, and, but God calls him his servant. So pe- people get hung up on on all of this kind of stuff. But um. I think Douglas kind of highlights here with this idea of um, nations keeping other nations in check and having a sovereign God here. He he helps us to see this idea of God wielding the nations, right? God uses the nations who are evil to bear the sword and to keep evil in check. Or as it says in Psalm thirty four twenty one, evil will slay the wicked. So whether Douglas realized it or not, he saw that him coming to a realization of citizenship, he and the slaves actually realizing, obtaining their citizenship, relied on a world without borders where truth reigned supreme and was exposed if, it, if people were trying to keep it hidden, and where the nations are wielded by the sovereign God to suppress evil. Okay, let me repeat that. Uh, a world without borders, so a borderless nation, where truth reigns supreme, and nations, even evil nations, were wielded 
by the sovereign of the universe to suppress evil. That's all we're saying in, in, uh, in this season. And I think Douglas's work illuminates that so well. Douglas would have made a good Christian anarchist. Maybe he was one. I don't know. Let's celebrate today that not too long after Douglas's speech, the slaves were freed, which is what is celebrated today, the freeing of the last slaves in the United States. But let's also keep in mind that those who serve any other king besides our God and King Jesus Christ himself are still in bondage to this pseudo-citizenship of petty kingdoms with hypocritical facades and false citizenship. But the Declaration of Freedom has been given. The gospel has been brought. The kingdom is here. You are free indeed if you hear and accept that Jesus has freed you. And that's good news. So spread the word. No king but Christ. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.